0: This episode of The Labor of Love is sponsored by Open Account, a podcast series created by Suchin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores, through honest and sometimes comical interviews, our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about family, marriage, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovitch, editor of RealSimple.com. Two weeks ago, I did something that will forever change my family life. I gave my 11-year-old son a smartphone. He just started middle school and has an hour commute to school each way by bus. I wanted him to be able to reach me and I him if there was an emergency. But I made this decision with a lot of trepidation. Because like most people, screens are a big part of my life. I work as a digital editor, after all, but more than that, I'm just as addicted to the bells, whistles, images, and apps that call to me from my iPhone all day long. I love Instagram, and I keep in touch with most of my friends via text. But I'm an adult. I understand the allure and the dangers of my phone and when it's time to put it away. But how, I wondered, would my son, who's young enough that he still likes me to read and snuggle with him before bed, handle such an addictive toy? Partly because I'm struggling with this question and partly because I know I'm not the only parent who agonizes over screen time, today I've invited two people whose words on this topic have been incredibly helpful to me as a mom. Joining me is Catherine Steiner Adair, author of the book The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. Also joining me is Janelle Burley-Hoffman, author of the book "I Rules, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up. Janelle is the founder of the Slow Tech Movement and I Rules Academy, and she is also the mother of five children. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Janelle.
1: Hi, Lori. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I just made this huge leap into the unknown with my son, as I said in the introduction. There's a lot of discussion in my circles, at least, about what is the right age to get someone a phone. And I think I've seen in my own group of friends that parents make very varied decisions. Do you two believe there is a right age? And how does a person, a parent, make the decision to get their child a phone or not?
1: Well, I think for when I'm asked this question again, just like you, I, I hear this all the time from parents in my own community, but then parents everywhere I go and interact with and talk to. And it's, you know, everybody wants that clear cut answer this question for me what is that magic number? But what I really think it's about is knowing our individual child. And as a mother of five children, I can certainly relate to this idea that just because my oldest got his first smartphone at 13, I'm going to need to assess the needs, the time and place, the cost, the behaviors and tendencies of each child as they come up through that that middle age, growing into middle school and adolescence, and making sure that I'm setting them up for success with the technology and that there are certain other checklists that I've considered about Behavior like their schoolwork, their contribution to the family system, how they're interacting with the other technology in their lives. So I do think answering that question for an individual child and family really needs to be a process.
2: Catherine, what about you? I think what's really important is not to give yourself false illusions that giving your child a smartphone that's fully equipped will make your child safer, And I think you also, before you give your child any phone, and every time you add to your child's phone a new app, a new program, you talk about what it's for, and you come to an understanding and a responsible use agreement so that in advance of giving them the phone, you've already made the stipulations for this is not for taking embarrassing photo or spreading a mean rumor about somebody. And if you do that with this phone, let's decide now what the consequences should be the first time or the third time or the fifth time. So it's a work in process, giving a child a phone. And I think you really have to understand, like, why are you doing this? What's compelling you? How much of it is anxiety? How much of it is peer pressure from your child or other parents? And how much of it is you caving to a new way of interacting that in your heart of hearts you actually are still conflicted about or don't think it's in your child's best interest?
0: I think you touched on something, Catherine, that I think a lot of parents face, which is the sort of group mentality that, Mm -hmm. you know, I know for my son, most of his friends got their phones as presents when they graduated from elementary school a few months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was a constant refrain from him about, but so-and-so has one, but so-and-so has one. And I felt equipped to handle that. And I said some version of you're not so and so and I'm not so and so's parent and so this is a kind of an irrelevant argument. <laughs> but I also felt feel among parents it's people cave and into getting their kids phones because Everyone else is doing it. It's almost like a repeat of the peer pressure that we felt in middle school.
2: I, th- I think that's really true, and it's really powerful. And actually, I've been in some schools where you know the entire third grade had them, and, and actually, we, I just ran sort of like a you know parent group talking about why is this going on? Look how it's complicating your lives. How can we peel back from this? You know, and really trying to understand whether it's third grade or sixth grade. Is this creating the kinds of connections between you and your child you need, and is this creating the kind of connections between your child and his or her peers that you want, and how is this detracting from their interacting in life in other ways that you want them to? And once you get clear about those questions, then it's very helpful to think about, okay, when can they have the phone, when not, why, why not, and under what circumstances. I think another thing that comes up
1: for parents in that age group, whether it's third grade or seventh grade that we're talking about is a lot of our kids are using devices that are not phones. So e-readers have apps on them. Um, you know, if you think about a phone without a, a program, like they log into Wi-Fi. So the phone is the the least used component of of a device. So perhaps they've been using certain games and apps all along and then often Instagram and other social networks come long before the phone does. So again, it's, we, we often talk about the emergency and being connected and the convenience of it. But in reality, we need to be parenting it long before we actually buy that smartphone because they're probably using it, using technology and social networks in one way or another long before that that big purchase where we might be paying a, a monthly data plan or, or something like that.
0: So Catherine mentioned uh contract of sorts a way of parents communicating with their children about very clearly about what the expectations were and then talking about the consequences for not following the contract. And Janelle, you wrote a very famous viral essay when you got your son a smartphone, which was essentially an essay in the form of the contract that you were giving to him about all the expectations you had, not just about his own use, but how he was going to use the phone and how it might impact others. Could you talk a little bit about that contract and why you think contracts, both of you, are an important piece here?
1: It's about being intentional And when my son, who's now almost 16, he was 13 at the time and in seventh grade, same thing, pining for the phone. And I wanted to make sure that I was really deliberate in that decision. So when I wrote the iPhone contract for him back in 2012, it was my attempt at being thorough and deliberate and making tech purchases and tech use um, a process, slowing down the automatic, oh, you've done... You know, this particular, you've hit this age point and you automatically get technology. So, really making sure that we were, there was a level of, now it's called digital mindfulness, which, or the slow tech movement, right? Really using technology with purpose. And I felt like outlining it up front really allowed not just The contract points for rules but also allowed a lot of dialogue it allowed a reference point and like Catherine had said at the beginning it was it's something we constantly revisit as he grows as he changes as his school district changes around what kind of technology they use and his needs change as he starts to drive and all of these different conversations but we always come back to that foundational contract when he first got his own smartphone so i think it's this great centerpiece for dialogue and communication and also to reflect family values and what families stand for. And I think that's why the contract resonated with so many people outside of my own home at that time. Catherine, do
0: you recommend that families draw up these kinds of contracts?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, to me it's no different, honestly, than having—we used to have those job charts on the refrigerator door when the kids were young. And you know we had sort of bedtime and study time, and you know stipulations in a place where everybody could see them. You know, I think the 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 thing that's there's so many basic things this accomplishes. Like one thing is basically you have until your child's in eighth grade to teach them very basic but critical elements of how to have a healthy relationship with a, a any screen device. And one of the most important things is learning how to go to sleep without any screens in your bedroom. And I was astonished when I interviewed a thousand kids for the book, how many third, fourth, fifth, sixth graders had iPads, had phones, had whatever devices they had in their bedrooms at night. Their parents had no clue. They were using their smartphones for alarm clocks to wake them up at midnight, to go on Minecraft and meet up with their friends. I mean, they were having a hoot. Wow. But simple things like just learning, you take it out of your room. You're not on a screen an hour before bedtime. You read from a book. Simple behaviors like that are so important because so many people are psychologically dependent on their smartphones or their iPads or their devices and literally feel like they cannot go to sleep. They can't go to the bathroom without them.
0: You just sort of referenced some ways that parents can be in denial or just unaware, for example, that their kids are taking their phones and screens to bed with them. What are some other ways, Janelle and Catherine, you've seen parents be in denial, and how can they be
1: less so? I think there's this really great reflection that we can all do, and it starts with us. And I'll share a story with you. I was um, giving a talk to a group of high school student leaders And we were having lunch together, and we were going through the process of how to integrate, you know, a tech-healthy lifestyle into their school district. And when we were done with the workshop, one of the girls, she was probably 16, she raised her hand. She said, you know, I really feel good about what we talked about, and I feel like I can help teach my peers. But one thing we didn't talk about is, how do I ask my dad to put his phone away when we're eating dinner? Right. And this changed my mindset entirely. It changed my perspective. And I couldn't agree more that we have to look at the reflection of the entire family and the behaviors of the entire family. So when we talk about denial, I think we're so quick to say, oh, kids these days are doing X, Y, and Z. But in reality, it's, it's taking over the whole family system. And we need to raise that level of awareness and what we want with ourselves first, what we're modeling, and then what we're teaching from there.
0: And Catherine, this echoes, Janelle's story echoes what you found in your interviews, which was a lot of children who spoke to you about feeling ignored by their parents because their parents were more interested in their phones than them.
2: Absolutely. I think one of the biggest things we're in denial about as a culture, as a global culture, as a global family, is that we have created in just eight years, with the popularity of smartphones, cultural norms that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have been seen as unbelievably rude and psychologically damaging. The most basic one is that you can be in the middle of a conversation with your child or your husband or wife, your partner, or an old friend, and at the sound of a ping or a ringtone, you check out of that conversation using the phrase, hold on, I just have to check. And you leave a person frozen in time. And this is so annoying and irritating <laughs> and ultimately frustrating. And when it happens once or twice, it's no big deal. Phones ring. Phones have always rung. But it has become okay to ask somebody to just stand frozen in time while you check out into a completely other conversation and the ramifications of just this change and then understanding more and more about neurologically how these phones affect us when you're on your phone you lose ambient awareness, you lose track of where you are. So we see people walking into street corners, getting hit by a car. There's been a huge spike in preventable accidents. We see people, I've, traveling around the world. It it just amazes me how often I am sitting next to a well-educated professional person who is having a conversation in their phone, that if I I recorded it and played it back to them, I mean, their job would be in jeopardy. This is HIPAA confidential information. This is business, you know... (laughs) Cure conversations because we forget where we are because everything becomes so urgent and so important and so absorbing when we're in a screen. So we're still in a lot of denial about how these phones have outsmarted us, and we've got to get a lot smarter about how to outsmart our phones and really think, are these the norms we want to be creating for our kids?
0: You're listening to The Labor of Love. When we come back, we'll be talking about whether or not kids can get addicted to their phones and other screens. Money is one of the last great taboos, something we all need but rarely dare to discuss until now. Open Account, a series of interviews created by Su Chin Pak and Umpqua Bank, explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. Honest, emotional, and sometimes comical, Open Account goes deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading cause of stress in America, money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. Okay, so there's a lot of controversy both in psychological circles and medical circles about whether or not technology addiction is a legitimate disorder, regardless of the ins and outs of that and whether or not it is, in your experience and from what you've heard from people you've spoken to, Catherine, do you see addiction as something that parents should be concerned about both for themselves and their children?
2: Lori, that's such a timely question. I actually gave the first talk at the Harvard Med School Continuing Education Conference on addictions, on the question of technology addiction. So it's in America, it's just entering the discourse. And in mm-hmm. the DSM-5 psychological community, gaming addiction is definitely on the tablet for conversations. In my work around the world, in Asia, Asia, China has 300 treatment facilities for kids between the ages of 5 and up who are addicted to technology. They are absolutely <laughs> clear it's addictive. Their methods of treating it are quite quite stark, and and certainly different from what we do in this country. There's a documentary called Web Junkie that was aired on PBS this July that shows what addiction looks like in China and how they treat it in China. And I think what we're seeing in America is certainly a, a countrywide conversation about the fact that some people, some children, some adults get what looks like psychologically dependent And addicted to technology, I myself have treated children as well as adults who I think have both a psychological dependency and a real addiction to technology. We have in our country now more and more outpatient programs and a few inpatient programs. I think the better models of inpatient programs are actually uh, outdoor wilderness programs where not only do you... connect to your inner self and learn that you can live without technology, but you experience yourself in, in wilderness, in, in beautiful settings, etc., that help you really connect with yourself in some deep ways. We see the same signs of withdrawal in adults and kids, and you see it in your little kids who aren't addicted with a capital A, but a little A. Uh, parents use the language of addiction all the time. I feel like I'm taking heroin away from my child when I say, get off Minecraft. Yeah. And, you know, we become crankier, more irritable, nastier. Our meltdowns last longer because you're taking a stimulant away from a human brain. And we love our stimulants and we do not like. When they're taken away. Yeah.
0: We are, as parents, always looking for the answer. That's why there's a multi-million dollar parenting book (laughs) industry as well as websites. The What you hear more and what I, you know, as I began with, you know, people want to know specifics. What should or shouldn't I be doing and when should I do it or not? If you had to give your top tips about children and families and technology use, what would they be, Catherine?
2: Decide as a family and decide as grownups what quality of childhood you want your kids to have. What are the memories you want them to have? What kinds of family time do you want them to remember having? What kinds of family vacations do you want them to remember having? What kinds of family conversations, dinner table talks, etc. And start there. Start with your dream of why, what brought you to family life and parenting and what you value and cherish most. And then think about how will you protect that and how will you use technology as an ally to create that so I think the first thing you really need to do is have a sort of family philosophy about, it, that, about tech and using tech as well as life offline that reflects and supports your family values and your definition of, of well-being and fun and happiness. I think really teaching your children and nourishing meaningful connections and teaching them relationship skills and how to stay in a conversation, even when you're bored or to the fancy restaurant, you know, without a tablet. Is, uh, those are really critical life tools, teaching your kids the social-emotional intelligence they need that technology can give them a teeny bit of, but can't really. I mean, those are things we learn from the people in our lives and the teachers and our friends in real life. And then I'd say another thing is home is where you learn how to be a good person, and home is where you learn ethics, and home is where you learn to deal with conflict, and home is where you learn how to forgive people, and really understand that we're different and we have to be supportive of one another. And so much of social networking sites don't teach kids these really important things. They play the snarkiness and anonymity and all that. So it's very important to make sure at home you protect time to teach these Mm -hmm. capacities because, you know, this is also what enables us to fall in love and and (laughs) have really good relationships, which, of course, you want for your children as they grow up, and I guess the last thing I'd say is tech can answer all your kids' questions, but tech doesn't love your kids. Tech does not have your values. And if you are in your tools and you are caught up in your own devices and your kids are left to their devices, they will turn literally to their devices for answers. And tech doesn't have your values. They don't know how old your children are. Kids get a lot of information their parents don't even know they have or they're unhappy that they have because they weren't available. So manage your tech use at home really well.
0: So Janelle, what are your top tips for families who are
1: struggling with these issues? The first one would be to assess and know your family values. You know, what's important to you? What's important to your family? What do you stand for? And really, what do you want to protect around those values? And then the second one would be know your child, know their individual tendencies. Some Children, they'll leave their devices under their beds for weeks at a time, and some of them can't go a minute without looking down at it. Um, Another idea is to take our time. Take our time to make choices. And that's not just in a device purchase. That can be in certain social networks. Really get to know the social networks. Become fluent and intimate yourself with how they work and why they would appeal to your particular child. And take the slow road. We talked about this earlier in the conversation is it's, you know, suddenly everyone turns 11 or 12 and is on Instagram, but it's okay to pause and say, we're going to take our time with this choice because again, the technology is here to stay. So we want to set up our child to have success with that technology. And sometimes taking our time helps us make better choices as parents and as young people.
0: Janelle, before we end, um, we've been talking a lot about the downsides of technology and the scary parts of technology, what are some of the upsides and some of the ways that families, children, adults can and should use technology for good?
1: This is such a great question and so important because a lot of times we all fixate on on the negative and on the parts that we feel overwhelmed by. But if we stop and say, wow, there's a lot about this technology that we could celebrate it becomes something again. We're we, we're not scared of, and we can we can use in in a fun way. So I mean, entertainment, games, those things in balance can be really fun. The convenience, right? If we can say to our kids, "I'll be there to pick you up in ten minutes," we'd all be liars if we didn't say it's much easier to communicate than it ever was before. You know, oh, I'm behind the school. I'm not in front of the school. Simple things like that that make our right. lives easier every day. Keeping in touch with family. We have family that lives across the country, and the kids will FaceTime or Skype with their cousins. And so while we may only see them once a year in person, we constantly feel like we're seeing them throughout the year. And that relationship, I think, is stronger because of that. And then uh, above all that, what's happening in the classroom and in education is really fascinating and exciting. And when we see teachers integrating technology, again, in that healthy, balanced way, using it deliberately and with purpose, we see really creative curriculum. We see students being able to be more organized and efficient. Literally, the, the world is at the fingertips of students and we can differentiate learning for varied needs. So the list is absolutely endless for the ways that we celebrate technology. And when we, li- when we bring technology in its best use and its best practices together with those family and school values, and like Katherine said, our cultural values, I think um, we can really be unstoppable.
0: Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you have a domestic quandary and would like to be a guest on our show, or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineer, Zach Dinerstein. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at itunes.com slash panoply or at panoply.fm. I'm Lori Levovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love.